Hello and welcome back to another edition of Friends of the Vine Wine Podcast. This episode will feature Laura Milnes. Laura is a Kelowna-based wine writer. She is a wine consultant. She runs various wine and food events up in the Kelowna area. She runs a website with a lot of video blogs on it that focus primarily on Okanagan and BC-based winemakers and wineries. That website is called Silk and Coop, and she runs quite a few events up there for the Kelowna community. She's very passionate about BC wine and very passionate about wine in general. Laura and I actually tried to have a conversation about six months ago, but unfortunately my laptop corrupted the file and I ended up losing that original conversation. So we chatted again about a month ago and here we are. Even since when we talked about a month ago, there's been quite a few changes even since then. She doesn't work at the hatch anymore. So any conversation we have about her being the assistant general manager at the hatch, that's uh, that's no longer. She's focusing full-time on her wine writing and on her events. And in fact, since we spoke six months ago, her wine and food events have taken off and her wine consulting and wine writing has taken off. So even in the last six months, a lot has changed. Forewarned, there is a bit more swearing than normal. I know I have the explicit tag on my podcast, but just wanted to put that point out there. With all those things in mind, let's get right into it. I don't even know really what what our first conversation was all about. I don't know either. <laughs> so long ago. A lot has changed since then. Well, and that's that's funny that you say that because that was going to be one of the first things I was going to want to talk about a little bit. Um, first of all, cheers. Happy yeah. Friday. Clinky. What, do you, what have you got going on tonight? I have a little Spatburgunder Rosé from the Mosul from AJ Adams. How about you? This is Black Sage and it's the Merlot. Oh, nice. Yeah. Just tried their cab at the uh, Colors Fall Release Tasting in mm. Vancouver. And it was so unbelievably slutty. It was like, oh my God. I the, hate that I like this as much as I do. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the, the Sauvignon Cabernet Sauvignon. Yeah, it was fucking delicious. Yeah. Their their whole line that that Cabernet Franc I think they have as well and then the Capsov and then this Merlot is yeah, they're all good. Yeah, they're they're definitely appealing to a certain contingent of consumer, which is pretty evident in the style of wines they're producing, which yeah. it works for them. Now, they just need to make a Pinot that I'm always, I'm still looking, I'm always on the hunt for a good Pinot from from the Okanagan. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a few. There's a few producers that I would say, which I'm sure you probably already know of, like Meyer. They're yeah. definitely a front runner. Um, this is a little bit of an unconventional kind of suggestion. I probably mentioned Heinle to you last time. They're in Peachland and they're all organic and they're crafted in a way where they can't really be released in their youth. The first Pinot that I had from there was from 2009 and mm. it was unbelievable with that their portfolio can be a little bit inconsistent so they're not which isn't necessarily a bad thing it's very reflective of vintage and terroir and they're just they're not masquerading as anything other than like this is the fruit that we had from this year like i heard in 2017 um because there were some really bad wildfires near them they actually had to discard a lot of their fruit like i think they dumped like six tons or something like that. I don't know even know if that's an accurate number, but yeah. 
So that's another one that I really like. Foxtrot, always. Joie. I don't know. There's so many now. Blue Mountain, like, that should have been my number one suggestion. Like, their wines are just absolutely incredible. And, like, I sort of was veering away from them because they're just, they're so revered in the Okanagan, but for good reason, you know? They're just, they, they're in an echelon of their own. Grayson, Grayson and uh, Grant, I uh, just did a podcast with Grant. He speaks highly, highly of them as well. So Yeah, I, I went to a tasting, a seminar, uh, well, Top Drop in Vancouver, actually, in a blind lineup up against some Beaujolais and Burgundy. They, they did not back down. It wasn't even noticeable that they were from the Okanagan. And uh, Blue Mountain and then Bella were the only Canadian producers in the lineup. And then uh, there was a producer from from Oregon, St. Innocent, and his wines were pretty spectacular mm-hmm. too. Yeah, that's another area I got to get a little more Oregon Pinot. For, for Pinot, like just talking about Pinot for a sec, I, I've got to get some more Oregon stuff. But then for me, it's also the price point is trying to – I try and keep it to – you know, say 35 bucks or something, a bottle is, you know, maybe 40. And then once you're starting to hit those 50, you know, like Oregon stuff, it's starting to be like, okay, well, you know, it's just the only bottle I'm buying this week. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, it's, this isn't going to be a Tuesday wine, or is it? Yeah, or is it? <laughs> be my special Tuesday night wine. Yeah. Yeah. When I chatted with uh, Bianca Bosker, she, that was one of her, her one of the points I remember specifically with her was she said you know you have special events you have birthdays you have anniversaries they're already special take that nice bottle of wine and make that particular night that you have a bunch of your friends and you want to make that night special and you you pull out that great wine you have an anniversary you have a birthday and it's already a special night you don't necessarily need another you know another special wine for that night make that Tuesday night really special and say oh remember that Tuesday night when we had that amazing bottle yeah, and that makes it special because it's it's pulling out something that you wouldn't necessarily pull out. So, totally. Yeah, no, I'm a huge proponent of that all the time when people come into the winery and they're like, "Oh, this will be a special occasion bottle." It's like, no, this will make it an occasion. For that reason, you should open it on a Monday. And I have a really fond memory of drinking um, a bottle of champagne that was gifted to me by a friend um, that I drank with my parents at Christmas time. And I actually wrote a blog about it. My mom was like sort of silently lulling to sleep as like the wine quietly got warm in her hand. And my dad's like guzzling it back like beer. And maybe at another point in my life, I would have been angry about it. But I was like, I'm going to remember this forever. Like, I enjoyed this with my parents and maybe they don't appreciate it as much as I do, but I'll never forget it for that reason. Where you were, when we were originally talking, you know, whatever, four five, six months ago, now you're, you're going gangbusters compared to where you were six months ago. I don't know. It's funny. Uh, It's the wine industry is a really hard and like intimidating industry to break into there's those untouchables, you know, like there's the Reese Penders and the Curtis Colt. How do you try and compete with people like that, like experience and credentials? And honestly, what it what it has come down to is just not taking myself too seriously, being confident in what I have to offer, finding and carving my own niche, and just putting myself out there. Like it's scary, but 
if you're consistent and persistent every single day and you exercise that like sort of tenacious bone, I don't know, nobody, nothing is ever going to fall into your lap. You have to go and get it. So like all these successes that I've had, my wine column in Kelowna now, um, I also just got on board with Okanagan Wine Club. I'm going to start writing for them. My promotion at the hatch has been because I've asked for it and no other reason. I guess that came down to just really believing in myself. And this isn't about like a, you know, self-help, like personal growth podcast, but that really is what it comes down to. But more than anything, what I've been experiencing lately as I'm very visible, um, fairly well known in the Okanagan wine community now, I've been experiencing imposter syndrome in a really big way because there's some people who know their shit, man. It's like, well, who the hell am I? Who am I to educate people? I'm not a winemaker. And a lot of people ask me that. I think by doing my interviews and talking to such a wide array of winemakers, I have learned so much and expanded and exploded my knowledge. And it's equipped me to, I don't know, feel confident in spreading that and putting that forth with everybody else. I hear a lot of feedback that my videos are a little bit too technical. And I'm sure you probably hear the same with your podcast. It's pretty fucking wine nerdy, but it's appealing to a certain contingent. And that's kind of who I'm wanting to appeal to anyway. You, you're, you're wanting to appeal to that, that slight wine nerd type. Yeah, like the people who want to know, oh, was the wine inoculated? Was it spontaneous fermentation? What kind of oak was used? How old was it? You know, what kind of soil? I think there's a way to sort of bridge that gap between the wine professionals and even the enthusiasts by way of storytelling. And that comes back to, we can source out and seek out that data anytime that we want. What's the story? And that's really how you're going to achieve that relatability factor. And that's what I'm learning as I'm going to it's like, anybody can regurgitate that technical data, they can talk about the story, or like even the history of the winery, but what are actually like the nitty gritty details? And I find, especially when I'm working at the hatch, or even when I'm doing private tastings, or even when I'm writing articles, when you tell a story, and you can tell that it's vulnerable, and it's authentic, and it's from the heart, that's when you really connect with people. And that's really my kind of end outcome in every possible facet of everything that I do with regards to the wine industry, I want to connect and I want to educate and I want to learn. Like it's like this three tiered, it's like this trifecta that kind of fuels me at every turn. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. And I guess as far as podcasts go, when I look at people who I want to emulate in a sense is guys like Levy Dalton who have winemakers on and they will tell their story of how they got into wine and it's a like you said, it's a hundred percent a story, but it leads you along a path of education as they're talking about how they got educated and how they are making wine and how they are, you know, working a vineyard and the stories that come along with that and working a harvest and you get educated along the way as they're telling stories. Yeah, that's that's what really appeals to me. And so I, I try to inject that anytime I'm doing a tasting or writing or doing a video, it's like, how am I going to make this interesting? That's what I'm struggling with. It's like, who do I want to appeal to? Like, and we've talked about this on Instagram before, you know, I could post pretty photos of myself with a bottle in my hand and be like, Oh, hey, guys, rosé all day hashtag. But 
is that diminishing myself or is that just making myself more relatable? And that's what I'm struggling with right now. So I've been asking a lot of people for feedback because I'm in the same boat as you. It's like, I'm trying to figure out what do people want? What do they actually want to hear and read about? And that changes by the day. And it's not always an easy answer. I can't wait for you to hear my my podcast with Madeline because she talks a lot about up and coming female presence in the wine world. And like you said, the whole kind of TNA side of it, she has some really great stuff about trying to get past that point, you know? Once you make that choice to really devote yourself, you see your following grow authentically. And it's, 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 it's low and slow, but over time it, it compounds and it builds. And it's like, okay, these are people that are really engaged. They're really interested in what I have to say. It feels like a big win at the end of the day because they're not following you just because you're a pretty face, because they're actually interested in your knowledge and your experience and the stories that you have to share. But there's also this fine line too where Well, they're definitely not following this pretty face, that's for sure. So they're they're uh... I love your post. <laughs> cute. Your little videos super up close. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's adorable. I love it. I get as much fun. Like, as... Lighting is not perfect. I will not post this. Yeah, exactly. It's like, no, I've got, I've literally got two minutes. I'm throwing a post up and I try and get as much of my bald forehead as possible in there and it's all good. I like it. Oh, thanks, Laura. Yeah. There's never a point in the juncture or in the journey where it gets easy. You set goals for yourself, you achieve them, and then you inevitably set bigger ones. And it's just about facing those fears and just, okay, I've tackled this now. What's next? I used to think that, oh, at some point in time, it's going to get easier. Like, no, it's a daily grind. It's a daily commitment every single day. Like, I have a lot on my plate. You know, I have my column. I'm managing the hatch. I have my blog. Like, and people joke all the time. They're like, oh, my God, you're always on the go. And like, you're always a million different places. And it's like, it never feels like a grind to me. It's like, I'm doing it because I'm passionate about it. Mm -hmm. And like, that's what my dad always told me. He's like, find your passion. It won't ever feel it, it's not that it doesn't feel like work, but it's like you're doing it because it's your calling, you know, so I, I have struggled with like, not necessarily the, the imposter syndrome, but like wondering if um, and I'm sure you can relate to this being super into wine, like, oh, should I go into winemaking? But that's not always necessarily the only answer. Like there's all these different types of roles that are applicable and need people to fill them. You know what I mean? So I, I did at one point get in time, get accepted into winemaking school in Lincoln, which is in Christchurch in New Zealand. And I felt guilty that I didn't want to go. But at the end of the day, I just decided that wasn't really the direction that I was meant to go. So, and that's okay. So Okanagan Wine Club, you've, you've picked up writing articles for them. The uh, marketing uh, director um, is a friend of mine and I just, her and I hang out fairly often and she had just mentioned that, you know, they're always looking for new contributors. And so she was looking for someone to come on. And the great part about that is like it, she gave me like full free reign. So I think I'm going to be writing my next post about uh, vegan wines and what makes wine vegan and maybe tied into this whole like natural wine craze because Honestly, it happens every day. Like there was a guy today in from the hatch and he's from like Guadalajara in Mexico. He was like, um, are your wines spontaneous fermentation? And I'm like, no. Well, what wineries can I go to? 
what wineries are organic, what wineries are biodynamic. And it's like, it's just crazy. I like all wine. There's shitty natural wine. There's shitty conventional wine. I don't know where this whole natural craze from. I guess it's with this whole like vegan organic thing. So like, I want to really tap into that and like, see where it all came about and like, why people have such a boner for it. I don't know if you watched my interview with Eric Mercier of Juice Imports. So he's a natural wine importer based out of Calgary. And he explained it in a really fair way in that yeah. how he looks at it is like, it's more of a proactive approach as, as opposed to reactive, like, just do what's right. Yeah. You know, tend to the grapes, how they're meant to be tended to. Um, we have atomic bombs, you know, at our fingertips. It doesn't necessarily mean that we should use them. Um, and he gave a lot of different examples of wineries all over the world that manipulate the hell out of their wines. And it comes back to just the, this redundant idiom known as, you know, expression of terroir. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, it's overused, but it's true. But I'm okay with a little bit of fine tuning and tweaking because that just means there's a really talented winemaker behind the scenes. You know, the winemaker's interpretation of that vineyard. And if they need to tweak it or fine tune it a little bit, then so be it. You know, if they're doing the job they should be, which is in the vineyard when it's really about farming, then they should have clean fruit to start with anyway. So, Dave uh, Patterson at Tantalus put it best. He said, I am essentially a caretaker of a piece of property. Assuming that he does his job in conjunction with the vineyard manager. They've got clean fruit to work with. They don't really have to do a whole lot. All they have to do is monitor the ferments and decide, you know, what's the oak program going to be? How hot or, or cold is the fermentation going to be? Are they going to inoculate? Is it going to be spontaneous? When I went to uh, Echo Bay in uh, Okanagan Falls recently and talked to Kelsey, the winemaker, she was very frank. She was like, yeah, if I have a stuck ferment, I've got to heat it up. Or maybe I add some juice from another ferment that's going like really rapidly. And she wasn't scared to share some of the tips and techniques and tricks that she employs if needed. But it wasn't like doing things as aggressive, like reverse osmosis or having a lab as big as like the size of a house with all these different chemicals and additives that you can use. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence because it really depends who I talk to because I have friends who are on either side. So I'm, I'm sort of torn and I really enjoy both styles. So I want to be so black and white in my decision making. I really became very fascinated and curious about this whole natural wine craze that really has been going on for a number of years now. When I started working at the tasting rooms in the Okanagan and all these people were coming in looking for these like big, massive, unctuous, punch in the face types of wines. And it's like, that's not what the Okanagan naturally produces. And if you're finding styles of that nature, someone's manipulating it to taste like that because we're a cool climate growing region. We're aromatic whites. We're medium bodied reds. Like that's what we produce naturally if you don't do anything to the wine. You're going to get a Cabernet Sauvignon that's medium body. That's why I was I was like, oh, like, how much fuckery is actually going on? And there's a lot. Sorry, well, I swear like a sailor. No, I, I've got the I've got the explicit tag on my uh, on my thing. So it's all good. <laughs> how many times have I said fruit forward about Okanagan wines, right? Like, mm -hmm. so that it gets a bit of that tag, right? Yeah. Um, the natural wines. I have uh, Rajpar's uh, book. The secret of uh, secret of the sommeliers from two thousand yeah. is two thousand six. He put that out, 
and that was 12, so 12 years ago, and he talks about natural wines in that book. So yeah, it's been, it's been 10 years, but all of a sudden in the last year or two, it's been all about stainless steel. It's been all about natural wines. It's been all about no oak. Like, like I talked with Grant. Someone says oak, and all of a sudden they're like, ooh, ooh, oak. Hmm. Right? And it's yeah. this whole, not this whole movement. But yet a natural wine can be great, but if it tastes like crap, I still want my wine to taste good. I don't want to drink a wine just for the sake of it being natural if it's going to taste like shit. It shouldn't be used as this sort of or an excuse for unhygienic or shitty or bad or poor winemaking because there's bad conventional wine, there's bad natural wine. There's people who have literally made careers off only talking and supporting natural wine and then they poo-poo other styles producers regions entirely and it's like who the hell do you think you are like that's not that's not the way to be a participant in this arena you know and that's and i i posted something on instagram a while back and you messaged me and you're like oh who are you talking about i'm like i'll never disclose who it was because it's a pretty well-known name but it really made my blood boil i was like that is so unbelievably arrogant don't publicly shame producers Like, that's someone's life's work. That's someone's livelihood, you know? Well, and the fact that for literally thousands of years, there's been oak and a a variety of of styles of winemaking. Micro-oxygenation was invented in Bordeaux. I talk about natural wine. Go to, like, one of the most revered regions in the entire fucking world, and they're you know, messing around with their wines too, so that they're more marketable and approachable to the average person. Yeah. Like, and, and I think why there's this, there's an aversion in a lot of conventional winemaking sellers because they're scared about the judgment that they're going to be exposed to. And that shouldn't be the case. And that's what really bothers me. It's like, why can't we be honest? Like, yeah, sometimes we do have to add acid or sometimes we have to add sugar in particularly cool years. Like, there's all these things that are just, it's a reality and it yeah. happens everywhere. It's, if it's a ba- well-balanced wine with great structure and I don't know, good longevity, I will, I will happily drink it. I know you drink a variety and that, and that kind of leads us to, I know you drink a variety of styles or from a variety of regions. What's your current kind of, what are you drinking uh, more often than not recently? Uh, it's funny because at the hatch, we all got together a couple weeks ago and uh, <laughs> I don't know, someone brought a wine or I brought a wine. So we always blind each other and they were like, oh, this is a very Laura wine. And it ended up being like, I don't even know what it was. It was some like high acid aromatic white. Like that's, if if I'm in the mood for something, it's most likely going to be like Semio. It's yeah. going to be Ehrenfelter. It's going to be Riesling. Um, I tried a fabulous Schoenberger from uh, St. Hubertus recently. It was like $15. It was like freaking delicious. Like I want wines that are food friendly, like wines that are like of a gastronomic nature because that's what I always look for. It's like, how can I make the food better? How can I make the wine better? And so I don't necessarily have this like one style because that's not really an ethos I subscribe to because 
what am I eating? What time of day is it? Who am I with? What mood am I in? Is it hot outside? Is it cold outside? Like it's really going to sort of dictate like what I'm going to eat or drink. But by and large, it's even here, I don't want to generalize because the other day I was drinking a, a Syrah from Morocco. Um, the winemaker was Alain Caillot. If you're familiar with the Rhone Valley, he's like freaking icon. So it was like outstanding. We live in a vast and varied world. And if we're only looking at wine, you could try a different wine the rest of your life and you wouldn't even scratch the surface. Yeah. So if you're going to ask me what style of wine I'm trying, I'm always trying to educate myself. So like, okay, I, I, for example, I'm looking at my wine rack right now. I have a 40 ounce of Muscadet des Sèvres <laughs> I have a an orange wine made from Macabeo from Spain. I have a Grenache Petnat from Australia. I have a whole shitload of uh, Okanagan wine. Um, I've got a Savoie. I don't know. Like yeah. I, I like to try a little bit of everything and I don't like to discriminate because I don't know everything. The more I know, the less I know. And like the people who tell you they're an expert are full of shit. I love sherry. That's probably one of my most favorite revered styles because, and I talk about this on my Instagram all the time. It's like you can have something super light and savory that tastes like the sea or something that you could pour over ice cream. So yeah, that's a style that I absolutely love. And I love the Solera system and the fractional blending and the proximity to the ocean and the different types of grapes they're using and just the history behind it. I don't know. I, I couldn't pick and I get asked this all the time and I can't, I can't pick because it depends on who makes it. Where is it, where it's from and what food am I going to have it with? I was at Liber Farm in uh, the Smilkameen about a month or two ago. And we were just tasting through the portfolio. And I was like, oh, so what would you say your style is like? How would you compare it to? And he was like, it's BC. It's Similkameen. It's Similkameen wine. Mm. And I loved that answer because it was, number one, super confident. But number two, not sort of falling prey to that comparison that everybody is really guilty of. Like, it's not going to taste like French yeah. or Italian or any specific type of region that you could think of. And I, I'm guilty of that all the time. Like, oh, this Pinot Noir tastes like Santa Barbara or this is Burgundy or it's very Willamette or whatever, you know? And it's like, no, just just be proud that this is whatever, this style of wine from this region. And we need to sort of just like keep drilling that into people's heads so that it potentially could become a style that is revered on the global scale. My boyfriend and I are planning on going traveling in the new year and we're kind of torn between either Brazil or Tanzania and Ethiopia. Those regions have like tenfold the amount of acres planted to vines than the Okanagan alone. I don't even know what they're planted to and what styles of wine they're producing. Apparently Brazil is making outstanding versions of sparkling wine. Mm. Bridles that I've probably never even heard of. And so it just goes back to that comment I made earlier about like, the more you know, the less you know. The more you know the more insatiable thirst you should be igniting. Yeah. Like, want to educate yourself every single day. As we talk about the growth of, of the Okanagan and the, or BC wine, is it going to get to the point where we talk about sub, you know, the sub appellations and stuff? Is it going to be to the point where they say, no, you have to grow? these are really working really well, whatever it is, right? Like the, the, the ones that always work well in, in BC, are they going to, you think they'll ever get to the point where, because we're so young, that it'll get to the point where, no, you have to grow 
whatever, because this is really, it really works well here and it's, it's getting well known, like Riesling, for example, or whatever is getting well known in BC where they put in those laws that they say, no, you have to only grow this in this area. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't know, because I think the beautiful part about BC and a lot of people I've spoken to is the fact that we have this freedom and this autonomy and this diversity. Like that's what makes our wine producing province as a whole so beautiful and appealing. We're not sort of subject to these very archaic rules and notions that, oh, you have to only make this specific type of wine. And if you don't, then it's labeled as table wine. And this is a very kind of like, redundant example but look at like the super tuscans they they bucked those trends mm-hmm. they were like, nope fuck it we're gonna do our own thing yeah and they're world-renowned style so i can see the okanagan going either way like there's still going to be those sub gis like the geographical indicators and it gives us that recognition factor but i don't think that we need to hone in um as much as say the rigorous rules and regulations that French and Spain and Italy abide by. I just, I don't know. We're, we're, we're a different region. We're young and we're experimenting and that's the beautiful part about this. And that that's what I love because every single winemaker that I go and interview, it's a completely different story. And I learn something new with every single person that I interview. Whereas if I was somewhere else, say like Bordeaux or Burgundy or Rioja or Rias Baixas or, what have you, it's all sort of like one in the same. And I know that's a complete generalization, but that's what I love about the Okanagan. And at one point in time, I sort of maybe thought about leaving, but I think that this is a really exciting time because I have never seen in my lifetime, having worked in the wine industry, more Americans visiting our region than ever before. And I only think that that's the beginning like i think the okanagan and bc as a whole is going to blow up as a wine producing area i totally agree in this in the in a lot of ways because especially with this podcast almost half my listeners are u.s based or california based so they're obviously interested in the okanagan they obviously want to they want to hear more about bc wines and, and the okanagan so to be frank like i would probably be disappointed if we sort of mimic or replicated that of like an AOC designation where it's so rigorous. Like I, I just, I just don't see it going in that direction. I think it'll be kind of similar to that of like the, the AVAs in the States where it's like, mm-hmm. okay, this is where it comes from. And like the fruit has to come from that area, but you're given free reign to kind of like manage the vineyard as you see fit that, I guess that just more works with my ideology and my ethos. I feel so lucky to live where I do. It's like, I I think this is just the tip of the iceberg right now. Like, I think it's going to be unbelievable to see where the Okanagan is in 5, 10, 20 years. Sorry, I keep coming off on like random tangents. (laughs) It's all good. This is, uh, we're going to call this podcast Laura's Takes on Everything. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us what you think about this, Laura. (laughs) Oh, let me tell you. Let me tell you something. How's the how's the events going with Soap and Coop and, and I know you've got a few events coming up and that's kind of taken off as well. We were talking about your writing and stuff, but as a wine and food and uh, events, etc., um, that seems to have taken off as well for you. Yeah, it's going really well. Um, so my first one was in July. We did a pop up dinner. 
And it was a little bit of a risk because, you know, I'd never done it before and like I didn't know who was going to come, but we ended up getting like some great media coverage and like some good like key industry people attending. Um, the food was outstanding. My boyfriend's a cook and so he did all of the cooking, um, the wines that we did. Uh, so it was with Mireille Sauvé. Um, she makes the wine for Les Dames um, and she makes some like beautiful like searingly high in acid style wines which I absolutely love so they paired beautifully with the food um and then Bradley Cooper of Black Cloud Wines he only does Pinot Noir exclusively that's another phenomenal Pinot producer mm. actually speaking of um, earth-driven Pinot you should definitely try them if you haven't and yeah it was just this really gorgeous showcase of like everything local like local food local wine even local musicians and it just went off without a hitch and I couldn't have been happier. And so that sort of propelled some good momentum and interest in further events um, thereafter. So my next one is the tapas and hip hop event that I'm actually hosting at the hatch next Friday, October 5th. And we're going to just, just do like an insane amount of like really cool food. And then again, it goes back to like local wine and I'm donating some of the proceeds to uh, Special Olympics. So I used to be a Special Olympic swim coach. So I'm going to donate some of the proceeds to the swim team, um, a local dancer. I just, I don't know, like I want to inject some culture into like the Kelowna scene that isn't veered just to tourists. I want to provide some type of entertainment for the locals because Kelowna dies down in the winter. Like it literally becomes a ghost town. So it, it's nice to have even something to do once a month for people that are young and maybe they are Vancouver um, exports and they kind of miss some of that buzz from the city. So I'm trying to mimic and like replicate that, but it just takes time and it takes a commitment and it's a lot of work, but it's worth it in the end. So yeah, I'm really excited. And I think my next one in November will be showcasing another local musician. Yeah, cool. it's good. Cool. I'm going to ask you, so one last question was a question that you wanted me to ask when I uh, interviewed with Jason Wise was uh, what wine lately have you had that you've had a real emotional connection with? What what's, what's hit you? What's spoken to you lately? So I ordered a case of wine from Metrovino. It's a wine boutique in Calgary. And uh, they actually have their own importing license. They have exclusive rights to almost all the wines that they carry so i just had them put together a mixed case for me and i was drinking that moroccan syrah that i mm. mentioned earlier and it absolutely blew my mind like it was one of those wines where you just smell the nose like literally 67 times and you're like you can't get over how stunning the nose is and you get into this sort of phase and you fall into these boxes where you're like oh I only drink searingly high acid white wine or I only drink searingly high acid rosé or really light bodied reds and I was worried that I was going to be over that category forever because the first wine that I ever fell in love with was Nebbiolo and like that's completely against everything I drink right now so this Moroccan Syrah was it was like a black hole of aromas I, I, I couldn't get over it and I drank it over the course of two days and with each passing day it just became more stunning than ever and it was also really cool to drink a wine from a region that I've never drank from or even knew that they produced wine from that region so that was really quite memorable you should look for it. it's called Sirocco 
and it's made by Alain Griot of the Rhone Valley from Pro's Hermitage. Um, and he's like freaking Syrah magician. So yeah, I would say that's probably one of the ones that's most memorable as of late. Cool. That's that's excellent. I I, can't, yeah. I thought uh, I thought that'd be one that you'd mention for sure. I think we're going to leave it there for now. Thanks for listening. For more wine conversation and podcast updates, you can follow us on Instagram at Ian's Wine Truths. Check out our website for great photos of our guests, friendsofthevine.podbean.com. Take care. Have a glass for me.